0: This episode of the Business Samurai Podcast is brought to you by Lamar Marie Popcorn. You can get now one bag and get a second bag for half off with the code BARKER at checkout. So if you like your snacks a little sweet, a little salty, a little mixture of both, go check out lamarmarie.com and all of the flavors that they have for your next snacking sensation. That is lamarmarie.com with code BARKER at checkout for buy one, get one, half off. Welcome to the Business Samurai Podcast. I am your host, John Barker. Excited to have a guest today in a subset of a field that I know almost nothing about from a software perspective. I have Linda Westfall. She is a president of the Westfall team and one of their lead consultants and trainers. Her specialties include software quality engineering, metrics, project and risk management, requirements engineering and management, peer reviews, testing, testing, Process definition and improvement. Prior to starting her own business, Linda was a senior manager of quality metrics and analysis at DSC Communications. Linda has more than 40 years of experience in real time software engineering, quality, project and risk management, agile, and metrics. She has worked as a software engineer, systems analyst, software process engineer, and manager of production software. Linda and her husband, Rob, also have an active fireworks hobby, which I definitely have a question or two about that toward the end of this. Linda, (laughs) really appreciate you taking the time and reaching out to me, and let's have some discussion on quality software management.
1: Thank you, John, for letting me join your podcast.
0: Absolutely. Prior to us, we you were starting to dive into the background about the 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 scope of ASQ and quality within software engineering, and it's a smaller scope and not familiar with because my experience with something like Lean Six Sigma when you talk about manufacturing and you got standard deviations, somebody's got this pin here, and only so many of these can fail before they got to look at the process or redefine. Kind of get into I guess your background with this from a software perspective because that is. to be honest with you, after 20-some years of IT experience, relatively new to me.
1: One of the things that is a big difference between software quality and manufacturing quality is we don't focus on replication. By the time you get it, it's already been designed. Those designs have been vetted, as it were, validated, verified, and You just replicate the process. So you're building that pin a million times and you can look statistically at how many failures you have, how many pins are warped or don't have a cap or whatever out of millions. In software, you really don't have a major issue of replication. Now it is important in that I can make a million copies of the CD to send to somebody. And yes, there's a potential of failure and yes, you need to sample once in a while, but the primary focus of software quality is the design and development side.
0: So how does, is this something that comes from large, very large programs, or is this something if somebody comes to you and they say, Linda, I got this idea for this really cool app and I want to build because we're in a software as a service environment. Everything is a subscription that we have to deal with nowadays. Mm-hmm. Where do you start engaging with somebody that, is it something that's been out in the market space of Microsoft that's got billions and millions of users, or is this something that starts from infancy?
1: And the answer is yes. Okay. To be perfectly honest with you. Any software that you are building has the opportunity to have defects in it when you build it. You write the code incorrectly. It all starts with getting the right requirements for the product from your customers and knowing what the customer's needs are and then building a software product that actually meets those needs. As I said, our main focus is on the research and development if we're going to use the software again we just replicate it it's not we call it reuse so we do something like you know here's a driver for running a printer we just use that same driver over and over again in multiple different pieces of software that brings quality with it because over time the defects are shaken out and the main issue, like I said, is when you build it, you make a mistake. That mistake turns into a defect in the code. And if you encounter that defect during operation of that code, then something bad happens, a failure happens, the wrong screen comes up, the wrong button is indicated. You push a button that's supposed to select one thing and it accidentally brings up a different screen. All the way to the point that software can kill people, and it has.
0: So how do you go about identifying, uh, going? what does what the workflow process look like on your end to try to either prevent the bugs from emerging in, before it gets released and then post-release? What's your workflow, what's your process look like?
1: When I talk about the different areas of software quality. I talk in my book, I've actually written the book on the certified software quality engineer which helps people get ready for the exam from ASQ to become a certified software quality engineer. I actually chaired the effort for six years of my life to make that happen and we built a body of knowledge around it. So I like to think of it as six major areas. First of all, there's the software quality management, which is all about setting your policies, Defining your standard operating procedures, also called processes, your work instructions at the organizational level. And then you mentioned you were project manager. You take all of that, which is what usually works best in your organization, and tailor it down to the project. For example, you'll have a standard process for conducting peer reviews. But your project plan says on this date we're conducting this peer review of this type. And these people are going to do it. So you have your planning documents on how you're going to implement the quality management system as part of your project plans. That's all the the management of quality, the planning, the establishing of the policies and processes. Then you have the what I like to call software quality engineering, which is defining those processes in detail, the associated work instructions, creating your templates, your training, making sure that people know what to do and how to do it, and when to do it and who to do it with and <laughs> all that kind of thing. You've heard about designing for manufacturability. This is what's happening too. Good, good processes create good products. Correct. So the quality engineering is all about defining those and then continuously improving those. That's the engineer, software engineering part. The software quality assurance is all about making sure you're following your processes and products and uh, pro- processes and work instructions and policies, and that they're working for you. And this is typically your software audits, your software reviews, where people are making sure that the pro- that the processes are being followed, looking for areas of continuous improvement, reporting both of those back to management.
0: Can I interject there real quick? Are you talking, when you're talking about audits and reviews, if you were using an agile process where you're releasing new code every couple weeks like in a two-week mm-hmm. sprint cycle, is this somebody sitting there signing off and going, yes, this button does what this button is supposed to do, this interface no, is- No, no, no. That's not there, we're okay.
1: We're talking audits and reviews of just the procedures. Again, the processes as well as the product.
0: Okay, both, okay.
1: But the product from a standpoint of does it meet its workmanship standards? For example, does the code follow the coding standard? Okay. And the naming conventions. Does the- Gotcha. Is there an appropriate header with all the information? That kind of thing. What you're talking about is the V and V activities, which are making sure, which are very product focused. Okay. The assessment can be product or process or even quality system, folks. I
0: told you this was an area I wasn't familiar with.
1: (laughs) Not a problem. The the V&B is verification, making sure the product matches its requirements as specified. Okay. So through peer reviews, through testing, through static analysis and other techniques, we look at the software focused in on the product, making sure it does, like I said, if it says this button should do this, we in testing push that button and make sure it does that's verification does it meet its requirements validation is does it meet its intended use and this is going back to things like user acceptance testing or looking at are the requirements even right are you building the right product versus did you build the right product the product right according to its specification so verification is you built it right according to the spec You follow the requirements and bill them all in versus validation. Is that spec appropriate and good to meet the user's needs? And does it actually do what (laughs) the users need it to do? You've probably gotten software that where somebody misinterpreted the requirement or misinterpreted what you asked for, and it doesn't do what you expected it to do at all.
0: That has happened probably on a, a time or two in my past, particularly with mm-hmm. a lot of custom programs that I have been involved with the government before. It was like, ah, eh, that's not exactly what we talked about when they went through that user story period, and somebody didn't write something down the right way, or I said it wrong, or somebody on the team said yeah,
1: it wrong. Yeah, so th- two different interpretations of a word. Can you talk? I have a whole list of words that say, don't put these words in your requirements.
0: <laughs> I guess, just, speaking of that, when you're t- going back to defining the requirements, what is the best way to approach getting those requirements defined so they can actually be built out the way they need to be? You're talking about the words, they, like your do not use words, but what's the best way to approach that with
1: new? Well, the best way is to communicate and talk to your u- actual users. The first thing you have to do is identify who all your stakeholders even mm-hmm. are, Because if you miss a stakeholder, you miss all the requirements associated with the stakeholder. I can tell you a story about that from early in my career. I was doing energy management building automation software. And one of our customers was a big energy park and they wanted a billing system added onto their energy management system. So that, because they got one electric bill for the whole park and they needed to slice and dice it and send energy bills to various customers based on certain parameters. And I talked to my customers and I did all the good practice in the industry, and built this system. And installed it, it was in Minneapolis, Minnesota in January. So we installed in about a half an hour, everything's good, but I'm there for the weekend anyway. So I offered to enter the database because I knew the guy was a one finger typist (laughs) and it was going to take him forever. And so he dictated and I typed and we did, everything was working beautifully till we hit the American Red Cross. Now, what's special about the American Red Cross and a billing system?
0: All of the donations.
1: They're sales tax exempt. Oh, sales tax exempt. That is correct. Yep. And most, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> never even thought. And, of course, he says, where's the field to make them sales tax exempt? And I said, you never told me that was a requirement. Duh, it was always a requirement. Just because he didn't state it.
0: It wasn't built into the...
1: It's like I, it, the analogy I used is somebody sold you a car that had every requirement you asked for, but it didn't have a steering wheel because you didn't ask for that. Absolutely. You know, might... It's not a car if it doesn't have a steering wheel. It's not a billing system if you can't make your customer, <laughs> your sales tax exempt customers sales tax exempt.
0: And that's something I've seen. I've seen that over the years where you either get, particularly with, I'll call them decision-making stakeholders.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: either don't want to take it into, oh, we don't need to talk to them. Or they have no clue what's going on, but because they hold the purse string... They want to just dictate all the stuff and say, hey, man, you're not the one using this day in and day out. Here's we're, we're talking to the end user experience. We're talking to the people that are going to have to use this day in and day out. How do you approach those situations to make sure you get it crafted the way it needs to be?
1: I actually, like I said, first of all, you got to identify, brainstorm, mm-hmm. bring those key decision makers together and have them say, who is impacted <laughs> by this system? Who does this system influence? Who might need to have, because the charity is not a direct user.
0: Right. They're an okay. indirect user. Yep.
1: Right. They're going to get the bill. <laughs> so who, you ask questions like who all is getting the right. outputs that are, if, I talk, if I'm building a at the gas pump system, I got to think about the state weights and measures lady. I got to think about the accountant who's going to get the reports and do the sales tax. Who are the other stakeholders besides just the customers and users Mm -hmm. and even the developers are stakeholders because requirements about reuse and portability and those maintainability are all part of the requirements of a software system. So first you got to identify all your stakeholders, and then I say, okay, here's your choices. You got to include them. They, you're going to go interview them. You're going to bring them together into a, a group, a focus group, or a facilitated requirements workshop, or whatever. Those are the people you're going to talk to. Then there's the like to includes. If I have time, and there's never enough time, but sometimes you <laughs> can get to some of those. If not, you've got to figure out how to do take your must includes and find out the information about the like to includes. And those that you can, you're just gonna ignore. For example, if you do a pay at the gas pump system, you have the vendors that are trying to sell you Slurpee syrup and candy bars are gonna impact be impacted because if the people aren't coming into the store, they're not buying those things. So what are we gonna do about them? I'm not gonna go talk to the Slurpee salesman to gather <laughs> software requirements. But I can talk to the manager or the owner about what do you want to do in the, about the potential of, you know, you may have a requirement that the back of the receipt has coupons on it, or you may have a requirement for advertising out at the pump. They're doing that now and it drives everybody crazy, but it may bring some percentage of people in, especially if it's a sale or something like that. But, so you've got to think about all those different stakeholders. Then you elicit all that information and there's going to be gaps, there's going to be conflicts. So you analyze those and start fitting them together into a complete system, identify your gaps, go back and talk to more people. So it's an iterative process. As you're doing that, you're specifying and writing all this down. Now, if you're an Agilist, it's being written down as stories. If you're more traditional, maybe you're using use cases or whatever. And then the requirements analyst has to interpret all that information down into technical requirements because the user is going to say, I want it to be user friendly. <laughs> okay, how do you program that? So the job of the business analyst is to interpret that and say for this customer through conversations with them, that means there's a help file, a help function. Or it may mean that somebody with 2040 vision or better from three feet away can read the screen on the pump in bright sunshine. Have you ever seen the ones where people are having to do this just I had, to- <laughs> I had to do that the
0: other day as a matter of fact.
1: Again, what's user friendly right. to that user? One am I ask them what they don't like about the system. Questions like that. One of my pet peeves with the pay at the gas pump system is they all ask you a series of questions including, do you want a receipt? but they don't all ask them at the same time. So they ask you all the questions, you pump your gas, and as you're trying to get your gas cap back on and everything finished up, then they ask you if you want a receipt and it times out before you notice. Come on, the software can remember for the five (laughs) minutes while you're pumping gas, whether you wanted a receipt or not. It's not user friendly to break those questions up.
0: And I've had it asked me at the beginning as well. Now, yeah, I won't say that's the I, do. I'm not saying that's like talking about different user specs of whoever required asked that. It was like all the questions were up front, you knew what you were doing. That was infrequent mm-hmm. versus the end. No, I know exactly what you're
1: talking have about. Have you noticed that some of the more modern gas stations now have pictures of what you're supposed to do instead of just the words?
0: I've not seen I've not seen those here.
1: What's what's the stakeholder that's they're addressing? Non English speaking? <laughs> here in Texas, that's a big issue. Okay. Or People that are illiterate.
0: Yeah.
1: They buy gas. So rather than having words scroll across the screen, there's pictures of what you should be doing next.
0: And the, and you just talked et cetera, about, et cetera. it's taking about illiterate. I don't even know if I know somebody personally as that, but you've hit upon a, 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 a thing out there that I've seen in the news going, there's actually a high percentage of people that are illiterate still in the United States to go that they're a stakeholder of a public facing payment system. That's, yeah. The okay. handicapped. Handicapped, yep.
1: Now, I'm hoping that nobody's driving a car that has to have Braille.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Autonomous is uh, coming. But
1: there, are, <laughs> yeah, ato- but there are issues. Maybe it's the passenger that's pumping gas and needs Braille or what. There's all kinds of subsets of customers. And then there's your quote-unquote unfriendly use stakeholders. People you want your system to be unfriendly to and this is where you get your security requirements and things like that. You want to you don't want people with expired credit cards using your system. You don't want people with stolen credit cards using your system, etc, etc. You don't want counterfeiters using your system if it accepts cash out of the pump. There are systems like that now that are starting to accept cash, etc. Yeah. Go
0: well, ahead. No, I was going to, I was going to, now that you've got the requirements, I was going to jump forward a little bit. You've got your requirements. It's now time to, for the tech team to put hands on keyboard and start actually building the systems out. This is a, something because.
1: There's a step in between. Okay. But, what, step
0: in between. Go ahead, please.
1: First of all, from a quality perspective, you go validate those requirements. Mm-hmm. You get the right people together in the room and validate them. But the next step is then to design your system. What are the various components in your system? Which requirements are gonna get allocated to each of those pieces okay. of software yep. within your system? What's the interfaces between the components of your system? You can't skip design, it's a very important step because otherwise module A doesn't know how to integrate or talk to module B. Sure. And that kind of thing. You want to Decouple it. This design is also where you get into actually designing in security, designing in safety, designing in usability.
0: Which was gonna be so, a question I had yeah. for certain And nowadays. then you put your hands on the <laughs> yeah.
1: keyboard and start writing code. This is one of my, again, a pet peeve of mine, is you go to college and they teach you data structures and algorithms and coding languages. And the kids, even today, they're doing better, but not great they may have one class in how to do testing. Okay. Or one uh, and nothing in requirements and design if you're lucky. Heaven forbid configuration management or auditing or unless you're going after a management degree, even project management.
0: One of the things that I'm talking about that, it's it always seems to be in a full project scope that the planning phase and the QA phases, if somebody's going to cut some places down, you've got enough, you need to get going and there's okay. You've got enough going here. You've tested enough. We need to get this out to the end users now, even if it's not mm-hmm. properly tested and stuff like that or not. So I, I... yeah. The,
1: and who, whose schedule always gets cut is the V and V people because mm-hmm. they are at the end of the life cycle. So as things run shorter, their schedule gets more and more compressed. The problem with that is the exponential defect cost curve. If you find a requirements defect during the requirements activities and it costs you one unit, that might be two hours of effort. It might be three weeks of effort, but whatever that unit is, if you don't find it to design, you can basically double that. It'll cost you twice as much because now you've got to redo the code, the requirements and the design. If you don't find it until coding, typically five to 10 times as much. If you don't find it until the field. The average in the industry is something over a hundred times more expensive. So it's pay me a dollar now or pay me a hundred dollars later. And we can point to classic defects. The Mars lander that burned up in the atmosphere, that was a software defect? No, I did not. One module was passing a number to another module. The first module was measuring let me see if I got it right. The number of meters away from the planet, passed it to the other module, no, I'm sorry, it was the opposite, number of feet away from the planet, passed the number to the other module that interpreted it as the number of meters away oh, from oh, the planet, oh, wow. decided they weren't close enough and moved in past the atmosphere, burned up the, mo- what did it cost? And what it was wasn't it? even the multi-million-dollar project that failed. But NASA lost reputation and had problem getting funding from Congress for future projects. But the costs of quality, and you're probably familiar, if you're familiar with quality issues at all, is there's prevention costs. There are assessment costs, which is all your V&V activities Mm -hmm. and other activities of getting it right. The prevention costs are the costs of training people and putting good systems in place mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing then you've got your internal failure costs the cost of fixing things that you find internal to your company before you ship it and then the external costs and the external ones are the ones that'll blow you out of the water on your project
0: the industry that i was thinking about as you were describing that i don't know if you're familiar with what's going on but it, no kidding is the video game industry the video game industry in the triple a gaming space has been hit hard over the past at least three if not four years with these games that come out that are almost non-functional that they've spent Mm -hmm. who knows how many 50 100 million dollars teams seven 800 person teams that have been monkeyed with by management and the publishers and all this kind of stuff and then just tossed out onto hey spend 60 or 70 dollars on my game that doesn't Work and it just blows my mind every time I see this because that's probably I tracks a little bit of that news. I
1: still play. Now it Now let's now. take that same yep. attitude of management and move it into a biomed product that is doing like the Da Vinci machine that's doing surgery on my husband's heart. True story. To repair a valve, huh? True story. True story. Back in 2011, I'm sitting there praying to the software gods that somebody was doing this right, (laughs) that they didn't do that. Unfortunately, yes, there's all kinds of industry standards. The FDA does all kinds of, did you do it right the first time before they let you even release the biomedical device and product? They just have come out with their second version of the guidance documents for doing software security etcetera 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 the issue here is good risk management because the lower the risk of the product but then those gaming companies they're one and done there's too much competition there if they put out a horrible product they'll never sell another one yeah and and or they just change the name of their company and put it out under another name
0: yeah well, <laughs> oh yeah no that and that <laughs> Uh, just tagging on that one for a minute, it's been one of those things that each iteration that they try to do, because some of them, there's been mass consolidation in that market space, that they can, they've can, they got some that are the money makers and others are loss leaders just for different genres. But going back to talking about the biomed and stuff like that, are 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 there specific industries come from cybersecurity perspective? There are certain industries that you've got your uh, compliance standards that need to be. Mm-hmm. It is like the talking about FDA. Are there other industries that are absolutely regulated by that need to be a. Pr- Automotive software. OK.
1: Do you know that the stand, the average car right now has two. Let's put this way over two million lines of code in it.
0: I believe that I've heard it made 10x over the next couple years. Yes.
1: And that's doubled from last year. Uh-huh. <laughs> Literally doubled from last year but over 100 microprocessor chips. I laugh, everybody talks about artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. My first comment on that is my my car tried to kill me. (laughs) Literally, and this is a true story too. I'm driving down the highway, I had never been in a car that had all the sensors in it before, and because I rent cars, travel for the living, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm in this car, I'm passing, there's a semi, I am coming up and passing the semi. I got too close to the rear end of the semi. Now I'm three fourths of the way over into my lane or more, and I've got plenty of room to get past the semi and get into the other lane to pass him. There's a person coming up on my rear end. We're going 70 miles an hour down the highway. The truck's doing maybe 55. Okay. I get apparently within the range where they're not happy, how close I am to that truck. Now I'm still, 10, 20 feet away from the truck, but it's going 55. I'm going 70. The car decides I'm getting too close too fast and slams on my brakes. First of all, unexpected to me. So I am literally almost lose control of the car because I'm not expecting it to slam on my brakes. The car behind me, which was 10 car lengths away, is now a half a car length away. (laughs) Because (laughs) I am now going, yeah. It's getting ready to be in my trunk. And I'm having to make a split decision. Do I slam on the brakes even more and try and pull over behind the truck? Do I go off in the ditch so the lady doesn't rear end me, or do I let her rear end me? And I'm having to make a split decision. (laughs) My car tried to kill me. (laughs) Because it made a, de- a wrong decision, and that's now, some- I'm sure there were parameters mm-hmm. that yes, I was close, but I was close and passing, and I was personally not advised of what the standard Dude. was, so I had no warning that it was saying too close or, hey, at 30 feet it could have said you're getting too close. Do you want to hit the brake? But no, instead it just slams on the brake on me, so. That, you know, health and safety are out there, folks.
0: Oh, absolutely, and that goes back to. So, my wife's vehicle is a couple years old now, but it was the first one that had all that safety feature on there, and and it had a bug. Nothing that got obviously to that extreme that you did. It's got yeah. the, it's got the side mirrors that if somebody's in your blind spot, the light lights up. It will, I love
1: that feature, by the way. Yeah,
0: that's actually what kind of messed up. It was all it was uh, always on. It was being triggered by nothing, like driving oh. down a road with trees. It's always on. I'm like, there's nothing there, or that type of thing. But it makes you because it was our first vehicle that had all of that stuff on there. Because it will instead of just slamming on the brakes. Don't get me wrong. It will if you if something if somebody just jerks to a stop in front of you, it will start gradually just slowing down if somebody is slowing down in front of you if you're getting too close to them. And I just there's those times where it's fighting for control because it wants to be in lane assist. It wants to keep you in the lanes and you can feel the steering wheel. Or it's, and in my head, I'm going, you're turning too le- too early, you're turning too late, and you're trying to help me with this. That makes me not fully <laughs> comfortable with it yet. With self
1: driving cars? Yeah,
0: with some of that stuff because it will yell at you. But it does make you wonder when you start talking about is this car if the anomaly? Yes. The human
1: mind can take so many conditions into consideration, and the software just can't. The only thing it's got is the distance between you and the truck and right. the speeds that it can monitor. And it didn't, it, it's not paying any attention to the lady behind me. How much? It's not paying any attention to the fact that I'm ch- changing lanes and I'm almost all the way over. It just sees the distance is too short.
0: It was something like that. So in, in our case, because and, and I think this is actually a good way to figure out how you detect do remediation mm-hmm. after the fact something something gets in the marketplace, you get the bugs all software has all software has some various bugs, because you can only test to World a certain
1: class software, according to Capers Jones still has two to 5% of its bugs.
0: With something like the car, there was a, a firmware upgrade that fixed that. They knew that was a, it was a, a problem when we took it back to the dealership because it happened within a week to 10 days of, of us taking possession of the vehicle. But one, who tracks that stuff to know if, if I hadn't, re, you know, is it just X amount of people have to report this back to the manufacturer going, hey, this light's always on for somebody to go back to, in our case, it was a Hyundai, to go back and say, hey, can you guys go check this out? We need a patch for this because we've had 2% of the people that have bought this. How are those things tracked well, so that can be fixed? Well,
1: automotive, I don't know what the regulated industry is for automotive. In, in biomed, it's the FDA, and when incidents like this happens, they have to be not only fixed internally and dealt with internally, but they have to be reported to the FDA, the Federal Aviation Administration. Mm-hmm. For airplanes, the, the um, FCC for telecom issues, telecoms, software security and safety related because of the 911.
0: Well, I, I Et cetera. Don't, well, so, you, you talk about the FAA if you saw the Boeing Max documentary mm-hmm. that was on uh, Netflix where they kind of changed the system but didn't want to go through some of the process to what looked to be hiding what was mm-hmm. should have been a very simple thing it looked like in the at the end of the the process for the well that's where we your vnv
1: comes in mm-hmm. how much re- retesting and regression testing can you afford because it's a balancing act that's another problem with software with hardware there it is there's the defect mm-hmm. you can see it there's right. a solder splash there's a bent wire there's a some of it still gets through But with software, it's first of all, millions of lines of code. Second of all, where's the defect? I mean, it's one of those, you can't prove the negative. All you can do is prove there are software defects because you found them, but there's nothing that proves that the software is perfect. How much, how much, it's all going to be risk-based. How much testing do you do versus? Because the prob- you have to look at the probability there's a yet undiscovered defect in your software and the impact if that defect gets in the field, because it could be a misspelled word on a screen. Big deal. Who cares? A misspelled variable name in the code could cause the code to crash. So even the same defect in the wrong place could be a major catastrophe. So there's the risk Again, the risk side, the probability there's yet undiscovered defects, because it could be perfect. You can't prove it's not, versus the cost of doing more testing and the probability you find the defect even if you do more testing. You could test for another three weeks and not find that defect. So it's always a risk-based balancing act with software.
0: I've always said, particularly with some of the projects that I have been on, you've got... A most likely a limited QA base to so sit there and help with this or whatever software tools you've got in there. But once it gets out into the public spirit, you never know what combination of junk end user is going to do to trigger something odd that nobody in a bazillion years would have actually thought about. That's been my And this experience. is
1: why a lot of companies do beta testing of mm-hmm. their software, where they put it out in the live field and let the real users <laughs> play with it for a while before they propagate it out to everybody. So another one of the V and V techniques is to do what are called alpha testing and beta testing. Alpha testing is letting the users use it and play with it in the lab in a test bed versus beta testing is a limited number of live sites. So at least you're minimizing the damage if it does occur.
0: Yeah, again, I'm going to go back to more familiar with that on the the video game market space. Don't ask me why I know all the video game news.
1: (laughs) Well, Microsoft does extensive beta testing of their products.
0: Yes, Adobe does as well, I've I've come to find out.
1: The telecommunications company I work for did extensive beta testing. We called it first office verification, Mm. but we put it out in one office and make sure it worked well because you can't have... The telecom system going down.
0: We're, I feel like we're finally also getting into an environment where cybersecurity is getting this obviously the spotlight shown on it with industrial control mm-hmm. systems. You got your water plants and electricity, gas, pipes, the- internet of things. How do you? How are you? How would you rate with all your experience on the quality side of getting the the security pieces baked in from implementation versus bolted on after the fact? Whether it's identity access management controls or just there's ways too much software that we used to see that wouldn't even encrypt the data within their own databases for instance are, are people putting a lot more but that they
1: didn't have to and internet? they didn't need to mm-hmm. because the internet was they, their <laughs> system wasn't hooked to anything right. nobody could get in because they had complete access control their system was a standalone system they Invention of the Internet has changed the game completely as far as cybersecurity Mm -hmm. is concerned. Now, the problem is, and to answer your question, I see most new systems being built with cybersecurity Mm -hmm. requirements, hopefully and good design and there's lots of good practice out there. There's penetration testing and vulnerability testing, what we call white hat hacking, where you get people trained to hack into your system and test it that way. The problem is software doesn't wear out. So back in the 80s and even the 70s and 60s, a lot of the software systems we use today were built back then when there was no internet and security wasn't an issue. The air traffic control system in the United States is a classic example of that. The air traffic control system was built back in the 70s, 60s, 70s, '80s. They've tried, it's so complex. It's so much spaghetti Mm -hmm. code. It's so long. My understanding, an article I read back when, they've tried three times to trash that system and completely rebuild it from scratch, and all three times it has failed.
0: Next Gen has, so th- has been th- this under... this is where
1: works. you start bolting things on.
0: Yeah, Next Gen because for FAA has been in, talked about for... Let me see, I did actually did my master's on Next Gen with that, and it's just it can't get what it needs to get off the ground, these legacy systems out there. So it, with mm-hmm. any of the work that you do, you go back? And, do you get, like, talked about to go back to legacy systems and go hey we need to bring this up to a quality standard for not only functionality security take and take a relook at these older systems because they can't do rip and replace
1: and the problem is do you even have the source code (laughs) did they do good configuration management back then which is another one of the quality topics that I didn't get to which is quality control Mm -hmm. where you're doing config controlling your software, doing your configuration management, doing your metrics, all of those kinds of things. But yeah, it's, it is an issue because what's the risk of doing it? What's the risk of not doing it? Because if I go touch that stuff, many of those older systems are, i.e., they were written in spaghetti code, nobody alive even, or (laughs) non-retired even knows how it's like 20 Y2K. I have th- friends that wrote COBOL code that made a fortune in Y2K. And, folks, some of those systems are still out there that were written in COBOL. But who's training anybody on writing COBOL code anymore?
0: Right. You're making me think of that movie Space Cowboys from, like, 2000 with Clint Eastwood. They had to go bring all the old astronauts out because they were the only ones that understood the system that had to be repaired. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, I started out on Unisys mainframe. There was people, not that... I actually, the dumb terminal and stuff like that. And that's what everybody, nobody could do that stuff anymore. And it's probably still there.
1: I have a client in Cleveland who is currently running an accounting system that was built in the 60s in COBOL. They are on the emulation of the emulation of the original operating system. (laughs) This is like taking Mario Brothers and making it run on a current PC with the current database, a current operating system. You've got three wraparounds between the original code and the operating system just to make it work. Yeah, retrofitting is an ongoing issue. And again, we got to go back to risk because is it riskier to have the potential security holes or is it riskier to touch the software to try and patch? the sec- potential security holes, which is- And I
0: would I would throw in a third one there. Is it riskier with a system that is that dated to not convert to something else short of it being so niche, whatever it is that they do, that you can't migrate to a, a, mm-hmm. a new system? What's the cost of the new system versus trying to maintain something through all of that craziness, but in the, my but opinion? But the
1: issue is, unlike hardware wears out yeah. and we throw it away. Yeah, we both go buy a new one. I've got cell phones in a drawer someplace <laughs> that don't even work on modern. Anyway. Um, but yeah, software does not wear out. Hmm. There's not the back end to the bathtub curve. Once it's good, it's going to run forever unless you touch it.
0: you got to pull the Apple, what Apple does with their phones, that they stop supporting their stuff after about seven or eight. Seven or eight years when they keep coming out with oh, the I can tell you a story about that
1: too. I worked for a telecom company mm-hmm. that right when Ma Bell started getting broken up, the very first competitor was MCI, and the only people building soft telecommunications equipment was one of the branches of Ma Bell. So little startups like DSC Communications that I worked for years, went in the business of building telecom equipment for companies like MCI and other upstarts. We're trying to break into a new market. We promised we'd support the software for the life of the product in the field. (laughs) Now this was not a problem for MCI Mm -hmm. because they always wanted the latest and greatest stuff and they were building new hardware and we're building new software to fit on that hardware. Now, fast forward 20 years (laughs) when I'm working for the company, and again, we're on version 30-something of this code, but there are some little Midwest towns where they're the only town for 50 miles, and there's all of 20 people in the town. And somebody is the telecom company, i.e. they have a switch in their garage running the telecommunications for those 20 people. Guess what version they're still on? (laughs) Two. (laughs) We're on version 36. Mm. You remember the old 8-inch floppy disks? Oh, yeah. The software is running on 8-inch floppy disks. You can't even get the disks anymore. Mm So we're having to hand patch everything because we can't give them new software because the only way they can read it is off of an eight inch floppy disk. We had to pay them money to allow us to come in, take out their system, replace it with a brand new modern system, retrain their their other two people for free (laughs) on how to use the new system, and they still weren't happy. And the reason they weren't happy is because now you've got to dial a seven digit phone number instead of only having to (laughs) dial the last four digits to talk to somebody else in town. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Versioning is that's yes. After a while, we said we only support the last three versions. Back in the day, we signed contracts like that.
0: Back when I, so I, I did uh, a lot more network engineering. That was how I got, I got started yeah. on the help desk, the computers. Like I said, I started out on a Unisys mainframe and then all this kind of stuff. But I was supporting an air conditioning refrigeration company years ago. And they were running some some funky off-the-wall software that was on a, oh, shoot, I can't remember, some sort of, sort of Unix-based command line system that was mm-hmm. had to be emulated through uh, a terminal server screen. And i just remember going hey the box is old it this thing is going the box itself is going to die and they were tied in to one support company made up of three people somewhere in florida and this is i'm in virginia and kept telling them i said if this goes down your business is down your dispatch for your text is down you can't bill you can't receive money and you just, you can't function if the software goes down, if the box itself dies, because this was, mm-hmm. I would say, pre, this is pre-cloud stuff anyway, but it, not that would have run into the cloud. And I remember always having to talk to those guys in Florida who are not, the one in particular was not a very nice person. So none of us, it was like, <laughs> I always usually made, because I was the consultant, I would make one of them call because I didn't and they didn't want to deal with them either. So we went through this whole process of trying to go switch out the software to something that was more updated, something that if somebody got hit by a bus, that somebody else could figure out how to use it. You're not tied into this one mm-hmm. supporting company. And sure enough, the box died. They didn't switch when we, had, when we tried to because one person in the company didn't want to learn a new piece of software because she had been there for 20 years. Mm-hmm. They got tied into this company. They're probably still using it for all I know. And to a vendor they did not like for hardware that I could have gotten for 20% of the price that they had to buy it from these other guys. And then they were down for 10 days and couldn't do any work mm-hmm. because they had to ship the stuff to Florida for the transfer. And it was just crazy how some of these places get stuck into these legacy devices when they when you're looking at – obviously, that's a small operation versus a big, gigantic, multinational corporation or a town or a municipality they may be locked into something. But how software doesn't, like I said, it doesn't die, but it should at times. Yeah, some software should, yeah,
1: definitely. At some point you have to draw the line and say, bite the bullet and upgrade. My husband did that with one of the jobs he was working on simply because the chip, it was all firmware Mm -hmm. and the chip manufacturer went out of business and they couldn't get the chips. They went on the eBay market and bought every chip they could find from anybody. And that gave them two years to convert the software to a new chipset. Been there. Because the assembly language was unique to the (laughs) chipset. And the chipset was antiquated. And sometimes the hardware gives up on you. And you have to move forward and migrate. So yeah, legacy code is a major quality issue in and of itself.
0: With, with with the current environment we're in, I'm seeing a lot of stuff where people are doing these drag-and-drop coding things for the no-code experience with somebody starting out. Mm. Do you have any thoughts on those? Because some of it seems very generic. It's like, hey, I can go create your own app. Use our platform. It's drag-and-drop I, I, versus somebody going out there and doing a, a customized solution for you from scratch or something like that.
1: I, I, I don't, think it's great.
0: I don't have any experience you know, with them other than I've seen more of it popping up.
1: It's the... What is it? The fourth or fifth generation languages now are all these, this piece of software does this piece of software does that this P and then you can build a series of those. It's basically getting you into let's design a good system. And then we can just plug and play all these reuse software pieces. The big advantage from a quality perspective is those components have been previously built in other systems. They have been, they've stood the test of time, whatever defects were in them have been out of them, you know, have been taken care of. So you get that quality. The problem is, does it do what you really want it to do? (laughs) Or do you have to start building some kind of weird wrap around so that this piece of this component talks to that component or talks to this piece, does you know yeah I think they're great they reuse code gives you a big boost in security but it doesn't come without a cost
0: and that's what I was curious about not just having seen that kind of start popping up in the market space that does it really get you what you're truly looking for or is it is it a 70% solution I don't even know what all the functionality is within there but for anybody that's starting out, because I know you've got, you've got your Software Excellence Academy, what would you say, I'm actually going to go talk to a group of fourth and fifth graders next week at the time that we're recording this, and mm-hmm. who have an interest in IT, and I'm going to be talking about, to a degree, software development. Of, I wish I had gotten into coding years ago. I don't know how to code, because that's, that seems to be the future. There's going to be a lot
1: more. Yeah, but coding is 10 to 20% of the job of building Mm -hmm. software.
0: What would you, well, how would you start somebody out that uh, approaches you and says, hey, I'm looking at, we're seeing a lot of people doing career transitions now. I know people reach Mm -hmm. out to me for career transitions or that person that's there maybe getting ready to graduate high school or something along that line. They say, I want to be in tech. I would like to be a software engineer. What path would you set them on?
1: Again, go look for a college that is teaching more than coding languages and algorithms. Go look for a, if you're going into college, Look for somebody that has a software engineering program, and by that, their um, teaching, testing, their teaching requirements, mm-hmm. engineering, their teaching design. I know, for example, the University of Texas in Dallas has hired some of the best gurus I know. I know that, for example, Mark Palkis is there, and he's teaching classes on architecture. And he's teaching classes. on. So look for a university. Don't just look. They have a good baseball program. <laughs> in Texas, so the University of Texas at Dallas does not have a good have football mm-hmm. team. I don't even think they have a football team that long, a good football team. But look at the program and look, you know, do you, do you even see the words software quality or configuration management or requirements engineering or even testing in their curriculum? Don't just look for, got a computer science degree and here's 10 different classes you can take on Python and C and whatever list of current languages there are. Because like I said, the actual coding is 10 to 20% of the job. And if you want a career path rather than a job. Now, there are people who love coding. They want to code for the rest of their life. They want to sit in the corner by themselves with a computer. I know them. Okay, fine. And if that's your jam, all the power <laughs> to you. But if you want a career path, you're going to need to know more than just how to code, because it, because there is the design and the requirements and all. And now, especially with the agilists being the more and more of that, and there's a reason there's more and more of that. I was that gonna going to ask on. your
0: thoughts on agile. I just I helped write a paper or a little bit on Agile versus Waterfall a month or two ago.
1: Agile is great in the right circumstances. Mm -hmm. Waterfall is great in the right circumstances. Pick the process that matches the way you need to be doing business. If you, I have seen Agile scale, but it's still not prime time enough to be building massive systems with millions of lines of code in it. Agile is great. You mentioned the small to medium size. Yep. Or if you're doing something that is even in a big system, very isolated. For example, I'm building a banking system. Agile is great. Because I can just have teams working on this little piece over there, which doesn't really impact all these other pieces. They can write just the night and day teller stuff. They can write just the financial web page, this one web page. And somebody else is doing this other web page. And never the twain shall meet, and that's fine. <laughs> but if you have a system that is needs to be tuned, that is large, it's great for doing automobiles. Because the automobile, even though it's got 2,000 lines of code in it, the fuel injection code does not talk to the anti-lock brake code. So you have all these little teams each doing their own little piece. Agile is great, but if you've got a system where everything has to work together, everything has to talk together, everything has to uh, be tuned as it were, so that it all works to performance together like a rocket ship or an Airplane navigation system, or a you know, then you have to have the rigor of the bigger teams. And I don't think that, not yet, it may get there, but not yet does for safety critical, security critical, lar- reliability critical large systems.
0: I I agree, because one of the things that we would see, particularly with Agile, when you're talking about trying to maintain scope creep, because Mm -hmm. I felt like in the government they were using the terms wrong with some of the stuff that I had been involved in, and you would sit there and, and go, hold on a second. I understand you want to show performance as you're going along, and not sit there and say you're not going to see anything for 18 months because it's a big system, it's a big build. But you're, but at the same time, you've given that power all into that verification approval. Oh, by the way, we've got a whole new backlog of new user stories that are coming in here, taking away from the overall. That's just what I saw.
1: You know, yeah, continuous reproduction. Just- and the biggest concern I have with Agile is they've all but, and I'm seeing it come back. But the original Agile's jump straight from requirements to code. And missing that design piece, I believe, is a critical unit that you're basically building technical debt into your system using Agile. Even though they talk about eliminating technical debt, yes, you're eliminating technical debt at the requirements level and the coding level. But you're building, again, security is added to the system during design. Safety is added to the Usability is added to the system during design. And if you skip that stage, I've got a lot of concern.
0: No, I've always said the more that planning design you can do up front again, coming from, I'll call it from the network engineering side. When you get to brass tacks implementation and flipping it live, man, your life's going to go a whole lot smoother. And you're not sitting there with your fingers crossed going, is this going to work the way we thought it was going to work? Can you down.
1: build a dog house agile <laughs> can I go say I need a dog yeah. house I need it to have a roof I need it to have a door I need it to be this big because my dog is this big and I go get a bunch of boards and build a dog house yeah do you want to build a house without blueprints
0: definitely not <laughs> <laughs> Even though I think house before this one, that's exactly what happened. But that's a different story. <laughs> that's a, different <laughs> that's story. a way different story. If they want to reach out or check out any of your courses, what's the best way for them to contact you?
1: Westfall at westfallteam.com. You can email me or they can sign on to my website at Software Excellence Academy. No spaces. So just Software Excellence Academy, all one word, dot com
0: and I'll make sure to have I do now.
1: weekly webinars. If you go slash webinars, it'll the next three coming up are up there. Record, I always keep recordings of the previous eight webinars there for people to watch. If you go to slash classes, you can see what live classes are coming up, what online classes. I do virtual on demand or live classes periodically.
0: No, that's awesome. And I'm going to make sure to put all the links in the show notes and all of that so that's all out there. And
1: There you got. We just did yeah. that one yesterday. That's- I need to take that one off. <laughs> but we do a theme of the month.